0: It is uh, a privilege and honor to be back uh, this morning looking at uh, the book of Philippians, but I want to start out this morning by telling you a little story from the New Testament about a man named Saul. Saul first appears in a scene involving a follower of Jesus named Stephen. This is in Acts chapters 6 and 7, and Jesus has risen from the grave by this point and ascended to the Father. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the followers of Jesus, and the church, this community that has formed around the person and message of the risen Savior, is expanding rapidly and is running afoul of the religious and political leaders. The church is growing, and the the powers of the world are not happy about this, and Stephen gets caught up in this conflict. He's He's a young man who's actively and boldly telling the story of Jesus, and some opponents of the gospel come against him and start making up lies about him and have him arrested. And he's hauled before the high council of the Jewish leaders and has to give an account uh, for his words and actions. And in this hearing, this trial, Stephen is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He preaches the gospel very boldly, and in the process, accuses of the very leaders that he's addressing of killing Jesus. He said, you killed him. Uh, Killing Jesus, the promised Messiah and the Son of God. It's a very eloquent message. Uh, You can take a look at it in uh, in Acts. Uh, But as you can imagine, the authorities do not like what they're hearing. So verses 57 and 58 in Acts 7 say this. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. A young man named Saul. The writer of Acts is Luke, and he's a skilled storyteller. And this reference to Saul dropped in here at the end of this chapter is an Expert case of foreshadowing. Luke is telling us we're going to hear about Saul again. And we do in chapter 9 of Acts. Verse 1 of that chapter has this menacing sentence. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and eager to kill the Lord's followers. Luke tells us in chapter 9 that Saul was a devout Jew who was so determined to hunt down the followers of Jesus that he went to the high priest and asked for letters authorizing him to track these people down, men and women alike, and haul them back to Jerusalem in chains. That's what's happening here. And on one of these expeditions, Saul is on his way to the city of Damascus in Syria. Now, Jerusalem where Saul lived and Damascus are not neighbors. They're not twin cities. We're not talking about Ishpeming and Nagani here. This is, you know, Jerusalem and Damascus are 170 miles apart. That's the distance from Marquette to Green Bay. And in those days, 2,000 years ago, that's a serious trip. You had to really love Fleet Farm and Olive Garden to make that trip. But Saul (laughs) is a serious man, and he was very serious about his self-appointed task of punishing Jesus' followers. And then Luke tells us in uh, chapter nine of Acts, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So this is happening outside of the city of Damascus. Around the same time, the Lord appeared in a vision to a man in Damascus named Ananias. He said, Ananias, there's this guy I want you to meet. His name is Saul of Tarsus. I want you to go to him and lay hands on him so that he can see. And Ananias said, "Uh, do you know, Lord, who this man is? He's terrible. He is the enemy. And spoiler alert, the Lord did know who Saul was. He said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias did as he was told. He found Saul, and he told him, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul immediately regained his sight and he was baptized at once. And what's the relevance of this story about a guy named Saul in our study of the book of Philippians this month? Saul, you might have figured out, comes to be known as Paul, the apostle, the writer of the letter to the church in Philippi, the church that he and his apostolic band started years and years before. So before we jump in, I want to just address something really quickly. Why the the different names? Why Saul? Why Paul? Basically, Saul was the Hebrew version of his name. Paul was the Roman version of his name. When he was in a context with a lot of Jewish people, he went by Saul. But in most of the context of the New Testament, he's working with Gentiles, so he goes by Paul. That's it. That's it. So that is the difference of the names. And as we get back into Philippians chapter 3 today, this This background experience that Paul has gone through is very important to keep in mind when we look at what he writes to the Philippians. It's very relevant to that passage. The writing of the book of Philippians takes place years after this encounter on the road to Damascus. And at the moment of the writing, Paul is awaiting trial in Rome, possibly under house arrest, Um, not necessarily literally sitting in prison, but either way, he has some time on his hands. So he dictates a letter to his friends in Philippi. He wants to thank them for their financial support of his missionary work, and he also wants to encourage them uh, in the troubles that they're facing as followers of Jesus who live in a Roman colony where the emperor is worshiped as a god. Remember, the, the people in Philippi say... Caesar is Lord. It's on their coins. It's in their songs. But the followers of Jesus in Philippi say, no, Jesus is Lord. And of course, there's conflict. So Paul is helping them and all of us to think about what it means to live on earth as citizens of heaven. For the time being, we live in the kingdom of this world, but we belong to another. Our Values are at odds with this world. Our priorities do not align with those of our culture. So what do we do? How do we live in a context like this? And in this letter, Paul is reminding the Philippians of a few things. One, this world is not our home. This world is not our home. We are ambassadors from a coming kingdom. And our conduct, which reflects on the king who sent us, is to be marked by unity, righteous character, and overflowing love. And the foundation of all this is humility, which we talked about last week. Just as King Jesus, the agent of creation, was humble to the point of death on a cross, we must also live humbly before God and others. And now here in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul expands on his train of thought. If you're reading through this uh, like a letter, just front to back, this section kind of feels like a digression. It's like he, he had this other thought that he wanted to, to chase, but we'll see that it's really connected to what he's already been saying. So let's jump into chapter 3, and I will read verses 1 through 14. Philippians 3, 1 through 14. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these, these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more, Verse five, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteousness, become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And then verse 12, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. And we could spend a month on that section alone, but we will not do it that way. Paul, in this Section of the letter is touching on a number of diverse but related topics. And I want to frame this passage in a way that helps us to see how it fits in with Paul's broader theme of living on earth as citizens of heaven. All the things we've talked about uh, this month so far we're citizens of heaven, we're ambassadors uh, sent by King Jesus, our lives are to be marked by humility. All of this is built on the foundation that Paul addresses here in chapter three. Simply put, it's all built on what Paul calls the infinite value of knowing Christ. So the kind of the main point of this whole chapter is living up to our high calling as citizens of heaven is attainable only in truly knowing Christ. But what does it mean to know Christ? So I turn to our old buddy, Gordon Fee, bring him back from last week. Gordon Fee writes, knowing Christ does not mean to have head knowledge about him, but to know him personally and relationally. Paul has thus taken up the Old Testament theme of knowing God and applied it to Christ. It means to know him as child and parent know each other or wife and husband, knowledge based on personal experience and intimate Relationship and thus to know Christ's character intimately. And based on the material that we see here in chapter three, I want to present four aspects of what it means to know Christ. First, knowing Christ is possible, this is a remarkable reality that our God is knowable. God is not distant, God is not hidden, God is not aloof. Our God is knowable and furthermore wants to be known. The prophet Jeremiah chapter nine recorded these words, but those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. Later on in Jeremiah the prophet records some famous words. We we know the words of 29:11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, they're plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And we we love those words. But immediately after this in verses 12 and 13, there's another promise of God that we sometimes overlook. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Paul could write about knowing Christ because he had experienced the transformation that Christ alone can initiate. Paul could write about Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's a really interesting thing about this this section in, in Philippians 3. Up until this point, Paul always always referred to the Lord Jesus Christ. you see it throughout the letter, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we get to chapter three and he says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he could say that because of this combination of intimacy and devotion. In another place, in Galatians 2, Paul wrote about Christ, quote, who loved me and gave himself for me. And Fee elaborates on this. He said, this is not simply coming to know the deity. It is that, of course. But knowing the one whose love transformed the former persecutor of the church into one whose lifelong ambition is to know him in return and to love him by loving his people. Knowing Christ is possible, as remarkable as that sounds. And in light of of this thought, and by way of, reflection and application, some questions we can ask ourselves. First, do I agree that it really is possible to know Christ? That's, that's the starting point. Is this possible? And then to bring it home, do I agree with the idea that I personally can know Christ? Don't think for a second that intimacy with Jesus or knowledge of Jesus is something reserved for super Christians like Paul and other apostles and some special class of individual. This is possible for each one of us, ordinary followers of Jesus who wanna know him, not just with our head and with a list of facts, but to know him personally and relationally. Knowing Christ is possible. Second, knowing Christ is paramount. This is the most important thing. As we set out to live on earth as citizens of heaven, knowing Christ is more important than anything else. You'll notice in this passage that Paul has some harsh words for a particular group of people. In verse 2, he says to watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. He's not talking about three different groups of people here. He's using three different labels, insults, to identify one group. They're known as Judaizers. And there are people from Jewish backgrounds who've become followers of Jesus, which is, which is a good thing. Many of his early followers were Jewish. But this group was teaching that all Christ followers, even Gentiles, non Jews, had to submit to the Jewish custom. Of circumcision. And this goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, It was based on a covenant between God and Abraham, the father of the faith. And circumcision was the sign that the people of Israel were God's chosen people. And the Judaizers here were legalists who were trying to make all of the new believers conform to this ritual. And Paul and the other leaders in the church in Jerusalem said, no, this is not right. Salvation is by grace given by God through faith in Jesus, that's it. End of story. If we have a list of requirements that people have to cross off in order to join the club, then we're saying that our actions are what's important. We're declaring that there are things we can do to earn God's favor, and this is contrary to the gospel. These legalists were hounding Paul wherever he went. Just as he had been traveling around this region proclaiming the good news of Jesus and establishing the church, these legalists were also traveling around proclaiming a false gospel of circumcision and conformity to the Jewish ritual law. And because of their false teaching, Paul called them dogs, which is maybe the most insulting thing they could say, evildoers and mutilators. Now, what does this have to do with us? Right? We, we don't have people in our day saying that Christians have to be circumcised in, in accordance with the Jewish ritual law. But we do have to be careful about the human tendency toward legalism in other forms. Any condition that we would place over and above knowing Christ constitutes a false teaching. There's a quotation that's attributed to St. Augustine, but as I was doing research I came to see it's probably more likely from a Lutheran theologian named Rupertus Meldenius, but I think it's especially fitting in our day. He wrote In essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. This is a call to agree on the major points of the life of faith, to allow for differences of opinion and even interpretation in secondary issues, but to display the love of Christ in all matters. This is a biblical ideal. This is an appropriate guideline for living as citizens of heaven, especially in the culture we currently inhabit. So let's have some humility in our theology. Pride says, I'm right about everything. Humility says, I think I'm right about this, but I'm gonna err on the side of charity. In recent years, I've heard followers of Jesus say things like this You can't be a Christian if you do blank, fill in the blank. You can't be a Christian if you believe blank theology. You can't be a Christian if you endorse blank social cause. You can't be a Christian if you vote for blank political party or candidate. And in all of these cases, the things they're talking about would fall under the category of non essentials. In Philippians 3, Paul has harsh words for anyone who would put conditions like this on salvation. Knowing Christ and trusting in his righteousness is the gospel. Conditional salvation based on external legalism is a false teaching that diminishes the work of Christ and puts the emphasis not on what Christ has done for us, but on what we have to do for him. So some suggestions to consider, some questions to consider. Am I trusting in Jesus, or in my own goodness and rule following? Do I have any secondary beliefs that are in danger of becoming more important to me than knowing Christ? Have I adopted any statement that begins, you can't be a Christian if? Knowing Christ is possible. Knowing Christ is paramount. Third, knowing Christ is progressive. It's a process. Ideally, we would know Christ more intimately and be more Christ-like today than we were last month or last year. That's kind of the ideal. This is what God wants to do in us. He wants to form us into the character of Christ. But the fact is that many followers of Jesus become complacent in their pursuit of truly knowing him. In another one of his letters, Paul chastised the Corinthians for not progressing from milk to meat in their teaching. This is what he's talking about here. And the point here is not pride or self-promotion. It's that Jesus knows that the more we possess of him, the better able we are to handle whatever life throws at us. Paul here in Philippians three writes about wanting to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And don't we all, right? Paul in Ephesians one said that as God's people, we have access to the very power that raised Christ from the dead. Think about that. That's the power we have as followers of Jesus. We would all love to see that displayed in our lives. But Paul also says he wants to suffer with Jesus and share in his death. And we read that and go, say what, Paul? I don't think I heard that clearly. I think there's some static on the line. Can you repeat that? That's quite a leap to go from wanting power to wanting to suffer. Like how could he arrive at this place where he was willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. It was a process that began years earlier. I started out by telling the story of Paul's first encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. We haven't talked about what happened next, because the New Testament is largely silent on this matter. There's a gap. And in his letter to the Galatians, Paul recounted the story to them of meeting Jesus on the way to Damascus. Jesus met him on the road, and then Paul says he went away to Arabia. And scholars believe that this period in the desert lasted three years. Jesus met him, called him, and then led him off the stage for a while. And we can imagine that this encounter with Jesus caused Paul to re-examine his entire life and upbringing everything he had learned about serving God turned out to be incomplete at best. We can imagine that part of this time in Arabia involved the Holy Spirit revealing to Paul the road that ahead would not be easy. The Spirit was doing deep work, deep formative work in Paul's life at this time. And Paul eventually arrived at a place where he could accept the trials that lay before him and actually yearn to share in the suffering of the savior because that meant resurrection was coming. How could he do that? He viewed his journey with Christ as a progressive one. Step by step, moment by moment, day by day, ever desiring deeper intimacy and devotion and knowledge. Some questions to consider on this point am I more like Jesus today than I was one year ago? Do I know Christ relationally and personally more than I did when I first believed? Am I willing to make time with him a priority? When I'm asked to suffer for Christ, do I do so gladly or begrudgingly? Knowing Christ is possible It's paramount, it's progressive, and finally, knowing Christ is priceless. Paul listed all of the things he'd been given at birth. He was was born a Jew, he was a descendant of Israel, he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, things that he could be proud of. He talked about the things that he accomplished. He was a Pharisee, which was not an easy distinction to achieve. uh, He'd been a persecutor of the church, which in his previous life is a badge of honor. He was known for his zeal. But all of this was worthless to him when compared with knowing Christ. In verse 8, in fact, he says it was dung, excrement. Paul realized that we live in the age of already but not yet. Christ has already secured his eternal throne, but he's not yet revealed his kingship to all. His kingdom already exists, but it's not yet fully inaugurated. Already, but not yet. So while it's possible to know Christ in part, Paul kept looking ahead, pressing on toward the goal, reaching for the heavenly prize. And that prize is none other than Jesus himself. Paul was so captured by the idea of seeing Jesus face to face and dwelling in his presence that he was willing to endure any hardship to discard all of his achievements as worthless. And because of this outlook, this attitude, this mindset, he could write in verse one of this chapter, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Because Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worth it. Questions to ponder, do you know Christ in this way? Not just knowing facts about him in your head, but personally and relationally in your heart and soul. Does your knowledge of Jesus give you the power to live as he's asking you to live on earth as citizens of heaven, willing to endure any circumstance for him? One of the great mysteries of the faith is that our God is knowable and that our God wants to be known by each one of us. I'm going to pray to close our service. And if you have to leave, feel free. But if you want to know Christ the way that Paul knew Christ, you want, a new, you want to know Christ in a new way, if you want to experience him in this way that Paul did, I'll invite you to come forward after I pray and come, come up to the altar, find a quiet place just to sit and listen for his voice. And I believe when we make ourselves available like this, he speaks to us, and tells us how he would have us to respond to this invitation. Maybe you don't even consider yourself a follower of Jesus yet, but something within you today is saying, I need to know Christ. If that's you, please come forward as well. And as I pray, I'll ask any, any members of the prayer team who are here to come forward as well and make yourselves available to pray with anyone who needs prayer. So let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by the idea that you, the creator, want to be known by your creatures. You invite us into your family. You call us your friends. You commission us as your ambassadors. And we recognize that we can't do any of these things apart from knowing Christ. What an invitation you've offered to us Speak to us in this moment. Help us to sense how special and amazing this is and what a privilege we have in calling out to you and knowing that you're ready, willing, and able to answer us. Meet with us today, we ask. And in the week ahead until we meet again, would you give us the power and ability and presence of your spirit to be your hands and feet and voice in this world. We pray in the name of Jesus, our knowable and accessible and relational King. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you'd like to pray, please come.